Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Oh, that was a deep voice. Whoa. Oh, that's just how my <laughs> voice sounds. That's just my normal voice. It's like, hey, I'm Sarah, and I'm Ben. You should probably know what my voice sounds like. I know. Okay. Anyways, thank you for listening to Scream Scene. How... <laughs> are you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. Maybe it's just because last week you had like an easy listening voice and now you're like bassy voice. <laughs> Count bassy. <laughs> How are you, Sarah? Doing pretty good considering the last few weeks, which listener, if you haven't listened to our last episode, I had pneumonia for like a week or so and that was terrible. Mm-hmm. But you seem much better now. I am, yes. I'm also pretty excited for this week's movie. Yeah, uh, this is another Val Luton RKO movie, the follow-up to Cat People, which you and I quite like. Yes. It's I Walked with a Zombie from 1943. Cat People was late 42. Um, I don't know what month we're in, in 43, but would the timing have been that, like, they were in production for I Walked with a Zombie before Cat People had even been released? That's correct. Oh. Um, Cat People had shot in the summer of 1942 and was released in December of 1942. And as we mentioned in that episode, it was quite a big success. It had cost the studio just under $150,000 and had made $8 million at the box office. The second assignment for Val Luton's B-Horror unit at RKO was shot in October-November 1942, so it was in the can before Cat People was even released, and then was uh, itself released in April of 43. Okay. It's worth stating that I Walked with a Zombie is, yes, a zombie movie, but in 1943, zombie meant like a Haitian voodoo concept, Mm -hmm. not your George A. Romero undead, brain-eating, shambling sort of monsters. Well, there's shambling. Well, yes. There's shambling in Haitian voodoo. But they're not, like, decomposing, usually. No. Um, That you get sort of from the late 60s onwards. Um, That really, in terms of, like, traditional folklore, have more to do with ghouls, Um, which that's a whole other thing we can talk about when we get to Night of the Living Dead in like a million (laughs) episodes. Um, But if you haven't listened to previous episodes on movies like White Zombie or Revolt of the Zombies, it might be a good time to do a brief primer on Haiti and Haitian voodoo and voodoo zombies. I can certainly offer that. That's good. People. For in-depth coverage of Haiti's history and Haitian voodoo, Definitely check out episode 32 on White Zombie. Um, That's kind of the biggest one that you'll get most information from. Um, But here's kind of a a primer. Voodoo, as a practice, as a religion, originates in West Africa, in and around Ghana. Um, With the slave trade, these traditions spread and, throughout the many years, morphed into different and distinct traditions. So... 
New Orleans voodoo is different from Haitian voodoo. For the slaves brought to Haiti, there were laws dictating compulsory conversion to Catholicism, um, mainly with the 1685 Code Noir. The intent behind doing this um, is to have these slaves be removed from their culture and from their social ties, so there's a less likelihood that they will revolt, basically, that they'll join together. Now, both Catholicism and voodoo have a pantheon of saints and gods, respectively. So to practice in secret, voodoo beliefs were kind of mapped onto Catholic ones. With Haiti, because of its history as kind of a Spanish and or French colony, depending on the time of history, um, voodoo itself kind of morphs into a very unique and creole religion. <clears throat> Further unique about Haitian voodoo is its ties to emancipation. 1685's Code Noir um, legislated corporal punishment and other very brutal treatments of slaves. Those that revolted and escaped formed disparate raiding groups, but they were very, like, segmented. Voodoo helped actually organize and bring these groups together, and this is kind of seen clearly in the example of one voodoo priest known as Macondal. Um, he escaped in 1751, and over six years he helped unite these raiding bands. In 1791, the Haitian Revolution began with a voodoo ceremony, with former slaves pledging themselves in the fight for freedom, which they won in 1804. Despite these ties between Haiti's history and Haitian voodoo, it's not recognized as an official religion, because voodoo and its practitioners are both respected and feared. Voodoo as it's practiced in Haiti involves invoking different spirits through sacrifice. Similar to the Catholic patron saints, uh, these spirits, or loa, um, have different icons. One that will be name-dropped in I Walked With a Zombie is Danbala, who is the father of the sky. Mm. You have two different types of priests, Hungans, who are male priests, and Mambos, who are female priests. And these leaders do good spells to help the community. Bokor are quote-unquote evil priests who cast darker spells, and the Bokor are who create zombies. Mm. Um, now, for Haitian voodoo, what a zombie is, is basically someone who has died, but their soul has been trapped in a jar, and the Bokor will, using the soul trapped in a jar, give commands to this walking cadaver. Mm -hmm. This uh, zombie is gaunt, has gray skin, staring eyes, and walks as if in a trance. Now, in 1982, ethnobotanist Wade Davis uh, went to Haiti and did some investigation about zombies and did verify that the use of herbs and puffer fish neurotoxin can, quote-unquote, kill a victim, um, basically puts them in a coma so that they, quote-unquote, die. Later, that person will awake, and then using different herbs, they can be put into a trance and made susceptible to commands and suggestion. Mm -hmm. So, there is an underlying truth to the fear about zombies. Yeah, and, and um, his sort of findings in the 80s, I think, were backed up by the fact that the legal language around 
zombies in like Haitian law refers to it a lot of the times as like a process of putting people like under your control through drugs and stuff that like that, yeah. that like as much as it was like news for like the white academic community of like oh yeah what they're actually doing is using like drugs to put people under um I feel like there's almost a sense that like yeah the people in Haiti already knew that <laughs> Definitely. Um, the Haitian Criminal Code in 1883, and even when it was updated in 2011, outlaws the making of zombies in not so many words. Mm-hmm. Um, quote, poisoning without death and causing a more or less prolonged state of lethargy. Um, and the punishment for this is equal to the punishment for murder. Mm-hmm. Interest in zombies and in Haiti in general uh, in the American public increased after the publication of 1929's The Magic Island from writer and reporter William B. Seabrook. And we saw that interest directly influence the production of White Zombie in 1932 Mm -hmm. um, and kind of continue. But I will note, you kind of gave this bit in the beginning, but um, there's only been three prior zombie movies before I Walked with a Zombie, and that's White Zombie in 1932. Revolt of the Zombies in 1936, which we watched and put on the miscellaneous list because not only is it just bad, but it's an adventure movie. And then King of the Zombies in 1941, which is a comedy. Yes. It is a Poverty Row comedy film that uh, features a lot of, like, minstrel-style humor. Oh, no. As well as, um, like, a very, um, like, I think World War Two. Uh, like, Nazi-involved uh, plot, because it all comes to pass that it's actually, like, the Nazis trying to make zombies in the Caribbean to serve as, like, an army? <laughs> well, maybe that can go on our, like... Horror-adjacent. Horror-adjacent list. Yes. Um, for Patreon stuff. So that's kind of voodoo, and kind of how people are thinking about voodoo in the States. Haiti has a very tumultuous history, and when I gave its history in the White Zombie episode, I kind of stopped around this point, but now I'm going to give you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, Haiti's independence was gained in 1804. Between 1804 and 1943, Haiti's struggling to continue uniting its regions. For example, its first leader uh, declared himself Emperor Jacques I, ruled for two years, and then was assassinated. Right. Um... And that kind of is the story for a lot of their leaders. A lot of Haiti's leaders were dictators, and it it, it was just a rough time throughout the 1800s for them. So we have a bit of a a revolving door of leaders until 1867, when a constitutional government structure was established. Presidents were still kind of overthrown back-to-back. Now, it's funny that you bring up the Nazi Germany plot in King of the Zombies, Mm. Because in the early 1900s, um, there was a German community in Haiti that at this time had significant economic power, and they were leveraging this into political power. The U.S., wanting to limit this influence, started putting investments into Haiti and ultimately bought Haiti's National Bank around 1910 to 11. Because they own the National Bank... Corporations and countries started complaining to the U.S. that Haiti was defaulting on loans, so the U.S. decided to occupy Haiti from 1915 to 1934. Mm -hmm. 
The U.S. instituted mandatory labor laws to build infrastructure across the country. And while, you know, building infrastructure is a good idea and it was improved, um, it came at the cost of forced labor and uh, protests and revolts, which were violently put down. And historians estimate around 15,000 people were killed as a result of the violence during mm. this time. Yeah, and that was sort of where we were at um, when we watched White Zombie, because that was 1932. Yeah, so this occupation ended in 34, though the U.S. would continue control of Haiti's external finances until 1947. And part of the reason why the U.S. started to leave is because Stenio Vincent was elected in around 1930, and he was very adamant about, like, get the U.S. out of here. Hmm. Vincent was um, democratically elected, but he used the national stability and professionalized military to establish absolute power for himself. Sure, 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 like you do. Yeah, so he was president until 1941. He had planned to continue his presidency for a third consecutive term, but the U.S. kind of looked at him, flexed their military muscles and economic power muscles, and so he gave power to his successor, Eli Lesko, who um, would eventually be overthrown in 1946 due to a violent revolution. But during this particular time, 1943, for I Walked with a Zombie, Eli Lesko is president. So the impression I get from that is that, like, even if the U.S. occupation is over, um, they're still, like... Managing Haiti's finances. Well, and, and also, like, pretty um, helicopter over their, like, political situation as well. Like, you know... Do you mean, like, helicopter parenting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, in the sense of, like, okay, well, but this is who's your, who your president is going to be, and, like, this is how the election is going to go, and that kind of stuff. Like... I mean, it's not like that's never happened in the history of the United States no, foreign policy for with sure. people south of their borders. Sure, sure, sure. I just was, you know, trying to establish that, like, them pulling out from the occupation really wasn't, like, an end to them trying to basically, like, run Haiti for Haiti. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's Haiti right now. Mm -hmm. And that also gives you a snapshot into voodoo. And Haitian voodoo, which is kind of where we started with this little bit of a uh, little bit of research. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I walked with a zombie is about zombies and voodoo and all of that. It comes back to uh, the rules for making horror movies that Val Luton operated under at RKO. Uh, there were three rules that he had to follow that were dictated to him by the studio for each movie he made. Uh, each film had to be brought in under $150,000, and each film had to be brought in, I believe, under 75 minutes long. And also, Luton could not pick the titles for his movies. Uh, each title was dictated to him ahead of time by the studio marketing department, and then he had to develop a movie around that title. So in this case, the studio's marketing department had bought the film rights for a magazine article, I Walked with a Zombie by Inez Wallace. Inez Wallace lived from 1888 to 1966. She lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and she was an entertainment columnist for Cleveland's 
magazine Plain Dealer. Uh, she would often write feature magazine articles and short story fiction in Collier's Magazine, This Week, and American Weekly Standard. Uh, reportedly, she wrote scripts for radio and TV programs, but it's 1943, so I don't think at least the television stuff has kind of happened. Mm -hmm. But I can also find no further details about what episodes that would be, what show that might have been for. So this article by Wallace, um, I Walked with a Zombie, RKO had licensed the film rights, but really all Luton had to use from it was the title. That was sort of what was required. Now, Luton hated this title, uh, which had a format that's very common to confessional articles that were mm -hmm. very popular at the time. Um, you read a lot of magazines from the 40s or the 50s. You'll see a lot of um, articles that have titles, you know, like, I worked at a newsstand, or I... <laughs> like... I dated a juvenile delinquent. Or... I married an axe murderer. Sure. <laughs> um, this kind of title. Now, Wallace's article was not uh, about, like, anything supernatural. It was about her experience meeting zombies. That is, um, people she encountered while at a plantation in Haiti whose vocal cords and cognitive abilities had been impaired by drugs, rendering them obedient servants who would understand and follow simple orders from the plantation owners. Luton uh, had to take this title and make something of it, and decided to make the best of the situation uh, by crafting what he called Jane Eyre in the West Indies. Um, now, Jane Eyre is a pretty significant novel in, uh, like, literary history, and it kind of has a big influence on the horror genre, despite not really being horror itself. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a bit more about that, since you're the gothic novel expert? For sure. So Jane Eyre was published in 1847 in three volumes that were published separately throughout the year. Uh, it has 32 chapters. I will be giving a very brief synopsis about the book. Um, so it's by Charlotte Bronte, and it's notable in its first-person narrative and of Jane's own reflections. And it's kind of the first time that you have a piece of literature showing how the main character's psychology can color interpretations of the actions or events that go on in the book. Hmm. So across these 32 chapters, um, it follows most of Jane's life, but kind of most relevant to us is when she arrives at Thornfield Hall. She's to be the governess to a little girl named Adele. Master of the house is Edward Rochester, who is just the most Byronic person. Yes. Weird things go on in the house. It's a big spooky mansion, gothic literature, gothic novel, gothic house. You know the tropes. In the midst of all of that, Jane and Edward fall in love. The wedding is about to happen, but then at the 11th hour, Edward turns out he can't marry as he's already married. Shock. His wife, Bertha, is insane and locked up in Thornfield Hall. In the attic. In the attic. The mad woman in the attic. And she's been who's been causing all of these mysterious incidents, like lighting people on fire and shit like that. <laughs> 
So Jane is like, what the fuck, and leaves him. Um, she has some more independent adventures, because it's a long, long book. Um, and then she is about to, like, really start falling in love with this other guy and getting over Rochester. When she hears Rochester's voice in the wind calling to her, so she goes back to Thornfield Hall, and it's a completely, like, demolished house. It's been burned up in a fire. Turns up, Bertha started a fire and killed herself by jumping out of a very high window. Edward tried to save her and stop her, and in the process, went blind and lost a hand. (laughs) You know, like you do. (laughs) But Jane still loves him, and they marry, and it ends with Edward getting just enough sight recovered to see their newborn son. So that is Jane Eyre. Um, Now, I... Oof. There's a lot in there, and I, I think what probably happened is they just mapped some of these like major plot points of like lady coming here to take care of someone um starts to fall in love with like broody Byronic master of the house and mysterious things happening mm-hmm. um that's what they took from Jane Eyre well, I mean a lot of what is in Jane Eyre really became like pretty familiar tropes of, like, the developing gothic literature genre, right? Like, I mean, obviously the the idea of the big spooky house was already in existence um, beforehand, but yeah, like, the number of stories I've seen that are, like, pretty much Jane Eyre, or you can point at and say, like, well, this comes from Jane Eyre, is, you know, pretty significant. I mean, even up to movies like Crimson Peak recently. Oh, definitely. One of the big things with Jane Eyre is that it's not a ghost. Right. It's just a lady. Right. Who, like, sure, she's insane, but it's not a supernatural being who's making these mysterious things happen. Right. But yeah, like, the the gothic novel, as we've sort of talked about in earlier episodes of Scream Scene, evolved into the 20th century by splitting into, like, the mystery novel, the romance novel, and the horror novel as, like, three separate genres. Yeah. So, to write this disguised adaptation of Jane Eyre, Luton and RKO brought on Kurt Siedmack, uh, the architect of much of competitor Universal's recent success that they have been trying to emulate. Uh, Most significantly, the writer of The Wolfman, but, you know, most recently, the writer of Frankenstein meets The Wolfman. Yeah. Luton wanted the film's treatment of Haitian voodoo to be authentic and encouraged Siad Mac to research uh, the practices, uh, which Luton did as well, to a somewhat obsessive degree. He was quite invested in trying to make sure that like, they were accurate to what was, I guess, known of Haitian voodoo. So, uh, Siad Mac's story was about the wife of a plantation owner who is turned into a zombie so she won't leave her husband. Uh, this was not quite what Luton was looking for. So, um, after the first draft by Siad Mac, he turned it over to writer Ardell Ray for rewrites. Born in 1907 in Spokane, Washington, to two West Coast stage actors, Ardell Ray's parents separated when she was a young girl, and this led to her bouncing between living with her mother, grandparents, or a boarding house. Her mother remarried 
1915, and Ardell came to live with her and her new stepfather in Los Angeles. After graduating high school, she worked as a fashion model, but made the decision not to go into acting. In 1931, she began working as a studio story editor, first at Universal, then in 1933 at Warner Brothers, to Fox in 1936, and finally to RKO in 1938. In 1939, she divorced her second husband, and in 1941, she joined RKO's Young Writers Project, a program at the studio intended to cultivate writing talent among the studio's existing employee base. I Walked with a Zombie was her big break, as rejecting Seadmack's draft put Luton behind schedule, and his low budget meant he had to find someone already on studio payroll to do the rewrites, rather than another outside hire. Ray delivered her script within a tight time frame, hitting the gothic atmosphere and brooding sort of um, visuals and characters that Luton wanted to capture, and thus earning herself a place on his regular team. As with all of his films of this period, Luton wrote the final draft of the script himself, but left his contributions uncredited in deference to his writers. After such a successful collaboration on Cat People, Luton once again brought in Jacques Tourneur to direct, music by Roy Webb, and editing by Mark Robeson. However, cinematography this time is by J. Roy Hunt, an experienced DOP with a career dating back to 1916. Whoa. His best-known film outside of this one might be the live-action photography for 1949's Mighty Joe Young. Oh, yeah, the King Kong ripoff. Yep. The King Kong ripoff by the people who made King Kong. Yeah. <laughs> the star of the film is actress Frances D., Born in L.A. in 1909, she began working as a movie extra on a lark uh, during summer vacation following her sophomore year of university. In 1930, while still working as an extra, she was cast as the female lead in Paramount's musical comedy Playboy of Paris. She starred in the controversial 1931 Joseph von Sternberg film An American Tragedy and several other popular Paramount pictures in the early 30s. She met actor Joel McCrea in 1933, uh, and the two soon married. Dee switched to McCrea's studio, RKO, where she appeared in films such as Of Human Bondage and Becky Sharp. She was still under contract with RKO when I Walked With a Zombie was made, uh, though she was no longer as big a star as she once was. She would retire from acting in 1953, and her husband would pass away in 1990 on their 57th wedding anniversary. She passed away following a stroke at the age of 94 in 2004. 94? Mm-hmm. Opposite Francis D. is Tom Conway, reappearing from Cat People. He was the psychologist in that movie. Mm-hmm. In the time between the two films, he had made his second appearance as The Falcon in 1943's The Falcon Strikes Back. <laughs> The film's second male lead is played by James Ellison. The 33-year-old actor had gotten his start about 10 years earlier at Paramount, earning early recognition as Johnny Nelson, the sidekick of Hopalong Cassidy in the popular long-running Western series. He 
He spent most of his career switching between westerns and other B-movie fare. We last saw James Ellison as the Scotland Yard detective in The Undying Monster. Hmm. He was alright in that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was basically Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, with a spunky girl sidekick. Edith Barrett, formerly of Orson Welles's Mercury Theatre Company, appears in the role of Conway's mother, although she was in fact three years younger than him at the time of making this film. She married fellow Mercury Theatre actor Vincent Price in 1938. <laughs> yes! With whom she had one son, though they divorced in 1948. Ironically, she would appear as Mrs. Fairfax in 20th Century Fox's straight adaptation of Jane Eyre later in 1943. <laughs> Luton's desire for authenticity extended to wanting to cast real calypso singers and dancers and other black performers to portray the voodoo practitioners and island natives. Teresa Harris, born in 1906 in Houston, Texas, was an African-American actress, singer, and dancer who was cast in the film. She studied at UCLA Conservatory of Music and made her film debut in 1929's Thunderbolt as a nightclub singer. Throughout the 1930s, she primarily appeared as maids, waitresses, etc., and was often uncredited. By 1937, she was getting frustrated over the lack of parts for African-American actresses in Hollywood films and began appearing in race films, believing competition from outside producers would force Hollywood to provide better parts for black performers, which isn't really how it shook out. Luton had actually cast Harris already as a waitress in Cat People, mm -hmm. and he had really liked her performance there, so he made a point to use her again in I Walked With a Zombie. Luton also brought on popular calypso singer Sir Lancelot. All right. Born Lancelot Pernard in Trinidad in 1902. He initially studied to be a pharmacist, but switched to music after hearing African-American concert tenor Roland Haynes perform. He made his debut as Sir Lancelot in 1940 at the Village Vanguard in New York and quickly became the top calypso performer in the United States and is considered responsible for popularizing the genre in America. His family in Trinidad disowned him, however. Uh, his father was a government official there and believed that his son's calypso singing uh, brought uh, shame to their family name. Sir Lancelot wrote the song Shame and Scandal in response, which he performs in I Walked with a Zombie, the first American motion picture to feature calypso music. Sir Lancelot was popular nationwide throughout the 1940s and remained active as a musician until the mid-1970s. He passed away in 2001 at the age of 98. Damn, 98. That's... Mm -hmm. All these people are very long-lived. Mm -hmm. Everybody who made this movie did great in terms of their lifespan, except for Val Luton. So as I mentioned earlier, the film was shot between October 26th and November 19th uh, in 1942. So they filmed on Halloween? Correct. Uh, significantly, however, this was before Cat People was even released. So the huge success of that movie was not a factor in how RKO budgeted or planned I Walked with a Zombie. Would it have impacted the post-production process in the sense of, like... RKO feeling 
having more confidence in Luton and giving him a bit more independence. Yeah, I think that's probably a good assumption. They lost five days from their location shooting schedule due to wartime gasoline rationing. Sure. So uh, this film was made on a tight budget and a tight schedule. Uh, And that's sort of what's significant, I think, to looking at this movie. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, I Walked with a Zombie premiered on April 21st, 1943 in New York, the same day that Jacques Tourneur's father, Maurice Tourneur's film, Le Main de Diable, opened in France. The film's wide release began on April 30th. It was another big box office hit for RKO and was held in theaters throughout 1943. Oh, wow. That's impressive, because, like... It's coming out in, like, the early third. Yeah, it came out in April, and I think it ran in theaters until December sometime. Yeah, that's the majority of the year. Mm-hmm. Critical reviews for the film were mixed. The New York Times called it dull and disgusting. The Boston Globe called it melodramatic and unconvincing. I mean, melodramatic, sure. But the New York Daily News praised the film, calling it spine-chilling. As with most of Luton's RKO output... Modern critics consider the film to be a classic, and it is heavily praised for its style and atmosphere. Luton himself thought of it as the best film that he produced during this period, despite never growing to really like that title. So how are we watching it? Well, Sarah, I Walked with a Zombie is available on DVD as part of the Val Luton Horror Collection from Warner Home Video. Cool, well luckily we own that. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> it was a Christmas present to you. Yes, it was. From you. Funny how that worked out. Yep. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, um, get yourself someone in your life who will buy it for you <laughs> for Christmas. Um, we, You are going to hear a brief musical break, and when we come back, we will discuss I Walked with a Zombie from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. Sarah and I just finished watching I Walked with a Zombie from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur. Sarah, you and I have both seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say we both like it. Yes. The last time you watched this movie with me, uh, I remember our feelings being that I liked this better than Cat People and you preferred Cat People to this. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that's still the way you feel? Yeah, I I think this movie is really good, but it's a little bit of, I don't want to say bait and switch, but like, it, it draws you in, and it's just slower paced than I think I would prefer, um, and it's a very quiet film. And it, it's definitely good, uh, but comparing it to Cat People... I think I prefer cat people. It's it's really interesting because there's a lot going on in this movie, but on paper, not a lot really happens. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely a movie that like runs a lot on mood 
and atmosphere. Um, I don't think it's unfair to bring up the issue of bait-and-switch because thanks to RKO's marketing department, a lot of Luton movies were kind of, by their very nature, like bait-and-switch movies because you were always being drawn in by the promise of some lurid, cheesy B-movie and then getting, like, these Val Luton movies instead that are always much more thoughtful than what you thought you were getting. Yeah, and I think this film is a good example of that. I I think there's, like, a few different layers of the bait-and-switch. So we have the bait-and-switch that you just described, then we have one where, like, the film's opening from the score to the font choice. Mm. Like, it's just very, like... This is a romantic film. Right, which is, you know... And Not wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's an element in the gothic genre. Yeah, and then it just, like, goes into horror. Um, and the horror that it even is is a very quiet... Not timid, but just a quiet mm-hmm. kind of horror. So let's walk through the plot. And I think maybe a key distinction needs to be made here because a lot of the story of I Walked With a Zombie happens before the plot begins. Mm -hmm. The plot, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, not a lot actually happens, but a big part of the plot is basically figuring out the backstory of what's happening, and that story is very, like, involved and complicated. So (laughs) that's maybe just a distinction to draw here. So the film begins with Betsy Connell, who is a Canadian nurse, recounting the time she walked with a zombie. Yeah, it's it's all in flashback voiceover, and it's... it's her Which vo- works, her voice like a Jane Eyre thing. Yeah, and her voiceover dialogue, text, narration, is written in a style that feels like those confessional magazine articles that we were talking about earlier, too. And even the tone of her voice is like, huh, it sounds so strange to say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. So it... it That's what I kind of mean by, like, the bait-and-switch. Happened to a friend of a friend of mine. (laughs) So Betsy has been hired as the nurse for Jessica, who is the wife of sugar plantation owner Paul Holland on the island of St. Sebastian, basically Haiti. Yeah, St. Sebastian, the island in this movie, is not a real place. Mm. But I get the impression that in terms of, like, the various Caribbean islands, it's meant to fictionally be one of the, like, British Commonwealth ones, just judging from Paul being British and um, summoning a nurse from Canada and and things like that. On the island, there is a small white community, and the majority of the population are the descendants of African slaves. Um, It's made obvious that Holland's family is descended of slave owners and profiteers of the slave trade, because they have, in the courtyard, the figurehead of one such slave ship, which has quite a gruesome expression on its face. So kind of the cast of characters, just to lay it all out on the table, we have Betsy, Jessica, the wife who is the zombie. She, you know, is in a trance, basically. Paul, who is the master of the house, the Rochester, as it were. Mm -hmm. Wesley, who is Paul's half-brother. Mrs. Rand, who is their mother, and Alma gets an honorable mention here as, um, as played by Teresa Harris. She's the, the, basically the housekeeper. Now, we're told directly 
that Jessica had a serious illness and her spinal cord was damaged as a result. But we learn the real story near the climax of the film. Of course, we get hints sprinkled throughout, but here's the real story. So Paul and Wesley are half-brothers, as I mentioned. Paul has a British accent, Wesley has an American accent, and it's just kind of explained that Mrs. Rand, their mom, had Paul, that's her first son, um, and then it's not really mentioned what happened to the dad. Presumably he must be must have died. Yeah. Because I don't see her being able to, like, divorce him, but still living on the island that, like, his yeah. fort is on. Wesley is the son from her second marriage to a missionary. Um, so Paul went to school in Britain, Wesley went to school in America, they have different accents. That's how that's explained. <laughs> <laughs> you know, lampshaded a little bit. Jessica, who is described as, like, the most beautiful woman ever to have walked, <laughs> um, she was actually going to leave Paul for Wesley. Now, Mrs. Rand's second husband, Wesley's dad, has since died, but she's kind of continued the missionary work on the island, and not so much, like, being a doctor, because she doesn't have a medical degree, but trying to encourage science among the locals. Yeah, and, and improve their, like, overall health and well-being. Yeah. Turns out, in order to help promote, or at the very least persuade the locals into following her advice, she started invoking voodoo. She gives the example of, I told them to boil water to prevent illness. They continued to do it, so I said that the spirits would chase away evil spirits in the water, then they started doing it. You know, good intention, not the best thing to be doing. Yeah, she's claiming that their gods speak through her, which is, you know... Something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) At the news of Jessica leaving Paul for Wesley, Mrs. Rand became furious about Jessica breaking up her family. She's worked hard to bring these two half-brothers together, and now this is all going to shit. So during a voodoo ceremony, she claimed she was possessed and asked the Hungan, the male priest, to turn Jessica, an evil woman, into a zombie. And that's how Jessica became the way she is. So as the film goes, eerie things occur... Um, and Betsy finds herself falling in love with Paul, and therefore becomes more determined to find a cure for Jessica. From Alma, she learns about voodoo, and takes Jessica to basically the voodoo church, where the villagers realize that Jessica is, in fact, a zombie. They begin to investigate her, but that investigation is cut short, so the villagers set their own zombie, Carafor, to go get her. They also tried to cast a spell on Jessica so she will come to them. With the revelation that Jessica is a zombie, Wesley feels that she must die rather than continue living this, like, half-life. Now, this climax is kind of intercut between Wesley following Jessica going to the voodoo church and the scene in the voodoo church where they are casting the spell for Jessica to come to them um, and using a, basically, a voodoo doll um, to represent her. But Wesley follows her out of the manor house and murders her. And we see the murder just as we uh, see the needle being put into Jessica's voodoo doll. Kirifor had also been following 
Wesley, and Jessica, and is still intent on taking Jessica's body. Wesley is carrying Jessica, flees away from Carrefour, and goes into the sea where he then drowns. And the end of the film comes uh, as Wesley and Jessica's bodies are brought back to the manor. Mrs. Rand, Betsy, and Paul are grieving, and there's a voiceover of a Bible passage. Do you have anything to say about the Bible passage? I'm not 100% sure if it's like a Bible passage, um, just because it's so... Or maybe it's like an interpolated one, but it's like... It has that kind of biblical language about like, oh, you know, yay, oh lord, kind of stuff. But it's also super specific to this situation, so I'm not sure if it's just meant to be like the voice of... Uh, their priest or or what have you. Um, I mean, it sounds very Christian, but also, like, as you explained at the top of the show, voodoo has those Christian elements, like, layered within it. Well, anyways, that's the end. The lighting and atmosphere of this movie is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have any scares in the way that you would think of, like, something being scary, like Mm. the movie Us. You know, (laughs) Uh, but I would argue that this film has tension going on and that's why to me it feels like a very quiet kind of horror. There's no real jump scares in the same way that Cat People has the bus. There is one Luton bus in the movie. It's not really a significant moment in the movie and I don't think it's something that like is as memorable as anything that happens in Cat People, but there is one Mm -hmm. which is uh, a scene at night where... Carrefour has made it into the manor house, and we see his shadow going around, and we hear his shuffling. Betsy goes out to investigate because she hears things, um, and she jumps at like a squawk or thing of from a frog, who then hops into a pond. Yeah, there's also I, I wasn't really mentioning the frogs; that felt more like atmosphere, but specifically the like owl that flies by her and just gives like a kind of bird squawk um but yeah it's it's like a very mild thing Mm -hmm. i think you know you say the movie doesn't really have scares and that's true in i guess the sense that yeah like there isn't anything really like jumping out at you but i also feel like that might depend on what you find scary um because like for my money this kind of like quiet scare quiet terror is is much closer to the kind of situations where I'm afraid hmm. um, because I don't spend a lot of my life getting chased by like serial killers through mazes or whatever. So like, do you get followed by zombies? No, but like I have had, you know, nights where you can't sleep and you are up late and you know, there's just the way that the shadows of trees play across things or the sound of the wind at night or, you know, when you're alone at night but you can't shake the feeling that you're being watched or followed. Um, or you hear noises you can't explain. That's kind of the stuff that makes you afraid more regularly in real life, right? And I feel like this movie evokes that a lot. In terms of, like, you know, in Cat People we talked about the the bus and also the, um, the pool scene. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, like, what the big scene equivalent in I Walk With a Zombie is, it's probably the scene where Betsy is taking Jessica to the home fort, the uh, the voodoo church, uh, and they're going through the 
sugarcane fields, this kind of like circuitous route you have to take that's marked by all these various um, like voodoo uh, symbols. And they basically just bump right into Carrefour, who's just standing in the middle of the field, like basically guarding things. Like if you're not allowed to pass, he wouldn't have let them pass. And it's just, you know, they walk right up to him and shine the flashlight in his face. And it's just this like sudden like, whoa, kind of moment. And what makes it effective really is just the like very unique appearance of Carrefour where he's this very tall, very gaunt uh, man with these sort of bugged out dead eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing that helps add to the tension that we're both kind of describing is the sound design. Oh, absolutely. So in Cat People, the sound design is very notable, but I think I Walk With a Zombie, the people doing the sound design have really struck gold. Yeah, I think that's the real secret weapon of this movie. Mm-hmm. So we will hear drums in the distance. Um, we'll hear horns in the distance. When Carrefour is in the manor house, we hear shuffling, and it sounds like he's shuffling around where you are. Even the moment that Ben described with the jump scare of the owl, like, all of that atmosphere, the sound design of the courtyard, is incredibly well done. And it makes the moments where it's quiet and there's silence really evocative and really stand out. And not in the uh, the night monster way of we just turned on a sound effect and then suddenly turned it off again. Correct. Yeah, everything here is very well constructed. Speaking as someone who does audio, everything here is like incredibly well designed. Everything is serving a purpose. And I think the biggest moment of silence comes... It happens here and there, but the biggest moment is right when Jessica is killed. So we see one of the voodoo practitioners have Jessica's doll, and we see him take a needle and put it into the doll. And as this is going, we hear the voodoo drums, um, the, you know, the particular beat that they're doing, um, the chanting, and then as soon as that needle is in, it's silence, and part of that is because that's right when we cut to Wesley standing up from Jessica's body, who he is clearly just attacked. And it's silence. And it's very powerful. And it's basically silent in the movie from then on to the end, with Mm -hmm. the exception of the voiceover uh, dialogue that we mentioned. Uh, And like some, you know, sounds of the waves of the water, but they're very sort of subtle and subdued. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the sound design here, um, it creates a very terrifying sense of place. And it not only creates that place, but it transports you as an audience member to that place. And it kind of just, for my money, um, it it sort of builds and sustains this palpable mood of dread through the whole movie that only gets released at that moment Mm -hmm. that you mention. It's funny that you described it as being released because to me it feels, I feel the weight of that silence. Hmm. One of the things that strikes me watching this movie is, um, so in the film industry, you always want things done well, fast, and cheap. And the conventional wisdom is that you can only pick two of those things. Um, and I Walked With a Zombie, I think holds a lot of sway over me as a 
sometime filmmaker because it manages to do all three of those things. It was shot, you know, in five days less than they had scheduled for under $150,000, which is like $2.2 million today. And it turned out to be an incredible film. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so I think that's something that really um, gives it a lot of cachet with me, is seeing them pull that off. It looks fantastic. Uh, I know we've been talking about the sound design. You briefly touched on the look of the film. Um, it continues on the same sort of dark, high contrast style of cat people. And again, it's this kind of haunting, nightmarish atmosphere that it conjures up. And most of all, what I noticed about this movie, even more than in Cat People, uh, was the use of shadows. Mm-hmm. Not just as a place where the scary thing might be hiding, like in Cat People, but shadows that sort of play across people's faces or across surfaces. You know, when you're getting the shuffling feet of Carrefour, you're also seeing his shadow move around. But even imagery of, like, the shadow of a tree branch going over uh, Betsy's face or various things like that just really contribute to the overall mood and atmosphere of this movie. Yeah, the shadows somehow make the movie feel bigger, or the, the set feel bigger. Right. Which is strange, because you'd think it would make it feel more claustrophobic. Like, that's how shadows have been used in the past, is to make it feel enclosed. I think it's because it helps make the, you know, small, probably relatively inexpensive sets feel more like real places, because you're getting the shadow of trees that you don't actually see. Yeah. But since there's a shadow of a tree, there must be a like space for a tree out there somewhere but you know to create the shadow you just need to stick a branch in front of a light right like it's a very good trick the cast of this film is uniformly marvelous yes yeah Frances d um sort of holds it all together she's kind of the audience's anchor i think um the most kind of normal person in the movie that's betsy yes yes Frances d plays betsy Uh, meanwhile, Tom Conway is very disarming as Paul. You never quite know if you should believe or trust anything he says. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm never quite sure if he's a good guy or a bad guy. The... I love that his brother explicitly describes Paul as Byronic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, I think James Ellison gets the role of a lifetime here as Wesley. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of role I love to play when I acted. Uh, someone who has a past that isn't really plainly spoken about so much as it's kind of something you have to read between the lines. Ellison delivers on all of that wonderfully. It's it's kind of incredible to see him do this, you know, after seeing him in Undying Monster, where, like, he was fine, but, like, anyone mildly handsome and articulate could play that part. Yeah. Whereas, like, this is a real role. Then there's Edith Barrett, who is fantastic as Mrs. Rand, who is probably one of the most utterly compelling and fascinating female characters we've seen on the show so far. I, I can't recall immediately another female character with as many facets as her, at least not recently. Then there's, of course, the unforgettable image of Darby Jones in the wordless role of Carrefour the zombie, which is such a memorable look that it was parodied exactly 
by Jones two years later in RKO's Zombies on Broadway, starring Bella Lugosi. Oh my god. Where it's a comedy film. Uh, it's about Bella Lugosi's character, who I think is like a mad scientist or something, coming to St. Sebastian and like using Carrefour as a zombie to do various things. Huh. Uh, and Sir Lancelot's in it as well, doing oh, Calypso boy. stuff. Um, but it's a total parody. Uh, equally mesmerizing for my money is uh, Hanno Moxer, who is the saber man or saber of the voodoo rituals. He's not the Hungan, but like he gets way more screen time and like magnetic kind of personality than the Hungan does. I think it's because um, I don't think he has any lines. No, um, but he's the one who. Uh, we first see dancing, and he's dancing with a sword, and he's the one who is enacting um, some of the rituals to have Jessica come or to have Carrefour go get her. Mm-hmm. Because most of the stuff he's doing is dancing. The physicality of it, I think, is what's memorable with him. Absolutely. There's also a sense that, and um, I think we'll get into this a lot more later, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that gets left up to audience interpretation. And with his character... There's this sense that, like, the Hungan, we don't really see a lot of, but he seems to be kind of allied with Mrs. Rand. Like, she's kind of controlling this whole voodoo practice on this island. Whereas the Saber Man feels like he's independent of the Hungan. Like, when, when he and the other islanders start doing the rituals to control Jessica or Wesley, like, that's obviously not under Mrs. Rand's direction, but also I don't really see the Hungan anywhere either. It's like taking back their um, practices for their own use rather than the way they've been kind of used by Mrs. Rand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. To that point, Mrs. Rand is a little bit of a paradox for me in this Hmm. film because she, like, obviously, white woman leading the voodoo church, uh, that's going to be a yikes for me. When we see her talking about her role with the Islanders, this is before we see that she's doing voodoo stuff, she has such an attitude about them being, like, primitive or lesser. Um, She just has such, like, a stick-up-her-butt, nose-high over these people um, because of these, like, superstitions they have. And then she's using those superstitions to her advantage, not only for, like, a fairly well-meaning intent of, you know, health and wellness, but then using those beliefs to then commit murder on her behalf. The thing that's interesting about her is, I mean, she's a very complex character with a lot of facets. She's very Mm three-dimensional. And I don't think we're used to that on Scream Scene, because even in, like, the best horror movies we've watched, characters are maybe at most (laughs) two-dimensional. And... The thing about her that's really interesting is that she is pretty nice to our lead character, Betsy. She never really directly threatens her. She's clearly very intelligent. Um, She's clearly got a lot of resources. And, you know, she also clearly loves her sons a lot uh, when she admits what she believes is her part in Jessica's condition. Uh, She clearly feels like a lot of guilt and remorse. But... She also clearly wields a lot of power and is very 
comfortable wielding a lot of power. When Betsy discovers that Mrs. Rand is, for all intents and purposes, like the voice of the gods on this island, Mrs. Rand suddenly takes on this bearing as if, like, yeah, I'm the one in charge here. Like, not, you know, not Paul. I'm the one really pulling the strings here. Um, And it it gives a very interesting and well-rounded character. Especially when you consider that during her confession, she says that she became possessed. Yeah, she tries to, like, shirk off some of the responsibility for what she did. Yeah, and I just see that as, like... I don't know, reprehensible a bit. Well, and also the question is, like, do you buy that? Mm-hmm. Right? I think the plot says that she's the villain. She's the one who turned Jessica into this way. Sure, Jessica was going to break up the family, but Mrs. Rand is who put us into this particular situation. But what's strange is that, like, the plot says it, but the film as structured doesn't quite say it. Because we don't see Mrs. Rand being pulled off to go to jail after or something. She's allowed the same amount of grief as Paul and Betsy at the end. The only way that, like, you can put blame and guilt on Mrs. Rand is if you believe that the supernatural voodoo is real. But the film itself is saying hey, is this real? I think it is, and doing that implication, but then doesn't hold Mrs. Rand accountable. I don't know. Like, this movie has a lot going on. Definitely. Um, It's certainly more ambiguous than Cat People was in regards to, is there something supernatural going on here? Because Cat People eventually, almost you feel like to its um, chagrin, finally, like, says yes there's supernatural stuff happening here. She turns into a cat. But, like, I Walked With a Zombie really refuses to say anything of one way or the other right up until the end, or past the end. It just doesn't. It's mm-hmm. ambiguous. I mean, Carrefour's a zombie, but, you know, we've we've established very well now that you can make a zombie with drugs. It's not necessarily a supernatural thing. With Mrs. Rand, I don't know as it really matters if the supernatural is real or not. With Jessica's condition, they initially, the doctors are saying, you know, as Sarah mentioned, it was a fever, it burned out her spinal column, and now she's in this zombie-like state. And then Mrs. Rand gives her explanation of what happened, which is, you know, as Sarah said, she asked for the Hungan to turn her into a zombie. Therefore, she believes she's responsible. And, And it is complex in her scene where she confesses, because she's saying... It's my fault. I was responsible, you know, and has this remorse and guilt. But in the same breath is saying that she was possessed when she made this request. So it's like, how much responsibility are you really taking? But then the response from the doctors are like, right. But whether a zombie's being made supernaturally or with drugs or whatever, the process is the same. You kill the person or bring them to some state that resembles death, a coma or something, And then you bring them out. And that never happened to Jessica. So, you know, you're probably full of shit. You know, nothing really happened. You might have made this request to the Hungan, but it's not your fault because clearly no zombie stuff happened. But then, later, we learn that Paul and Wesley know, but Mrs. Rand doesn't know. 
And the doctor. And the doctor doesn't know that Jessica did go into a coma at one point. So you're just, as an audience member, left with, like, what really happened and what you choose to believe really happened depends on a lot of unreliable narrators. Because um, the thing that's really different about this movie is that the full history of what happened at Fort Holland before Betsy's arrival never gets sat down and explained in some sort of like objective flashback where we sit down and it's like, here's the real story. Instead, like you have to put it together and interpret it. And everyone who is giving pieces of the puzzle, they're slightly contradictory. You know, at times, is it Paul's fault that Jessica went mad? Is it Mrs. Rand's? Was it just a fever? And you have to kind of decide, like, okay, do I think this was supernatural or not? That's kind of the first thing as an audience member you have to decide. And then that forks out into, you know, who was responsible for Jessica and so on. But for Mrs. Rand's character, you know, you talk about holding her accountable. And I, I agree with you, by the way, uh, that she's the villain of the piece, or she's one of the two villains of the piece. But I also think that I Walked with a Zombie is a movie that's not really interested in traditional black-and-white hero-villain dichotomies. It's telling a story about a bunch of people, mm-hmm. and this is these are these people, and this is what's happened to these people, and it's the situation they're in. Um, so it's not really interesting. You know, that's why Mrs. Rand doesn't have a scene where she goes like, <laughs> the zombies under my control! <laughs> Definitely, right? yeah. Um, and the thing about Mrs. Rand being accountable... Whether something supernatural happened or not, she believes something supernatural has happened. So, yes, she's not really hauled off to jail because ultimately there's nothing really to haul her off to jail for, but she clearly feels the guilt and remorse of what's happened to Jessica because even though she's doing a bunch of morally reprehensible things, she clearly has like a well-meaning heart. She wants, you know, she has a morality. That's why she started doing these things on the island, you know, as you've said, with the best intentions. So she feels bad about what's happened to Jessica, and she feels it's been her fault, and she's been holding the secret of her fault. So the way the movie's holding her accountable is by racking her with that guilt, and that when she finally, you know, confesses all this stuff, now it's out in the open. So the people who do believe it, you know, whether it's Paul or Wesley or whatever will hold her accountable now, right? Like, in the sense of just blaming her for it. It's not about... I I think it's less about other people holding her accountable in an external sense, and more about the fact that internally she feels that guilt, and that's what's holding her accountable. She is miserable, basically. And that Mm -hmm. is... That's her comeuppance, is the fact that she lives in tragedy and grief and misery on this shitty island where nothing good ever happens. That's, I think that would be how I think the movie holds her accountable, as it were. In that case, I want to bring up Paul. Yes. So Paul um, has a very kind of, like, <laughs> I don't want to say Eeyore type of thing of, like, oh, it's gonna rain. <laughs> but his first lines are to Betsy, and she's like, wow, it's so beautiful. And he's like, is it? Everything here dies. Yeah, he's definitely got a, a sort of a nihilistic streak That's to the him. That's word, nihilistic. Mm-hmm. And his kind of depressive or kind of cursed attitude or atmosphere also kind of gives weight and form to the colonial history that is in the film for this island. Mm-hmm. And this colonial history and the, the history of the slave trade is like 
directly invoked with the figurehead from the slave ship being in the courtyard. Um, the man who drives Betsy up to the manor in the first place is kind of giving her, you know, the lay of the land, and he says exactly this, and that all of the villagers are descended from these slaves who were brought here chained to the bottom of the ship. And her response is something along the lines of like, well, they did bring you to a beautiful place. He's like, sure. Yeah, if you say so. Which, like, you could read a couple different ways. One is that, like, yeah, white lady, like, you don't know how shitty this place is. Um, or you could also read it as, like, yeah, he's never been anywhere else, so, like, is this place beautiful? It's just the only place. Whereas, like, of course, to Betsy it's beautiful. She's from Ontario. <laughs> uh, I, do, I do love that. Like, she's Canadian. <laughs> like, we're always on that. Canada is, like... Like, I feel like it's a central part of Canadian identity to, like, flip out whenever there's a Canadian in a pop culture thing. Yeah. And I guess what I appreciate with, like, this invoking of colonialism is it's it's both love and hate it. Because, like, it's invoked, so it's said, but then it, it's not explicitly, like, brought up or dealt mm-hmm. with. But if you read between the lines of what you were kind of saying before with the Sabre Man kind of bringing the practice back away from this white lady, mm-hmm. basically. I don't know, there's kind of like, there's a lot of layers going here, and it's very surprising for a film from 1943, made by white guys. Yeah, in in the Hollywood studio system. Yeah, to have a film that's talking about colonialism, even in, it, like, as, I mean, I guess it's fairly explicit for the time, but, like, even in just this manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the thing about this movie is there's so much going on here, and the script is so intelligent, mm-hmm. which is like another Val Luton trademark, that feeling that the movie isn't talking down to the audience, that it wants the viewer to think about things, whereas so many other horror movies we watch clearly don't want you to think, because if you start thinking, you'll be like, wait, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Um, the film is filled with references to classical art, for example. And the treatment of voodoo here feels immensely authentic. Uh, It kind of blows the Halpern Brothers and Black Moon and all those other movies, like, clear out of the water. Um, The movie does portray voodoo in a spooky kind of way that makes you kind of afraid of it because it's part of the unknown. But it also feels like... Like a documentary... Right, or that at least the movie is treating voodoo on its own terms or allowing it to exist as, like, an equal thing. It doesn't feel like it's being turned into, like, I don't know, some kind of, like, ooh, you know, uh, (laughs) Halloween costume thing. The film deals with issues and problems that are much more adult than the typical B-horror movie, uh, just like Cat People did It's a movie that's about madness, um, but it's also a movie that's about adultery. uh, And it's also a movie about a desire for death. Mm -hmm. And that's okay in this movie. You know, the film has the the dialogue-less climax that we've described a few times here now, and that could be read a few different ways, coming back to the ambiguous nature of the movie. You could read it as Wesley and Jessica being under voodoo control, um, you know, the, the exact sequence of events, Jessica goes to the gate and she can't get out because the gate's closed and she's just a zombie. 
But then Wesley comes over and opens it for her and lets her out. And the thing about it is we've already established that Wesley thinks she should die, that that's a better ending for her than staying alive under her condition. He goes to Betsy and asks if Betsy could basically perform euthanasia, and Betsy says no. So then we see Wesley walk over to the figurehead of St. Sebastian that Sarah's described. And, I don't know, I'm going to have to look up St. Sebastian, because he's got all these arrows in him, and that's a St. Stephen thing, so I'm not sure. But Wesley pulls out an arrow, and that's ultimately what he uses to stab and kill Jessica, uh, you know, the same time the voodoo doll's getting pinned. So you could read this as they're under voodoo control, or you could read this as completely voluntary, given that they're both doing what they wanted to do anyways, which is Jessica wants to leave, and Wesley thinks she needs to be killed. So, you know, what's really going on? And the other thing that you need to decide how you're going to interpret is, is that a happy ending, mm-hmm. right? That's the thing that's really wild here for me, looking at this as a Golden Age Hollywood movie, is if you really pay attention to what the movie's telling you, this is kind of the best ending for any of these people, and ultimately the scary voodoo priests are the ones in the right, and they're the ones facilitating this, you know, happiest ending possible for these tragically fucked up white people. And if the story has villains, it's not the voodoo priests, it's the British colonial plantation owner and his missionary mother. Like, Paul's the other villain Mm -hmm. in this movie. At least depending on how you want to interpret Paul. Because once you've made your choice about is Supernatural real or not in this movie, you have to decide is Paul a good guy or not. Because boy is he could be anything depending on his, you know, what you want to believe. Because his scenes and his dialogue are so ambiguous and vague. Sometimes it feels like he wants Betsy to fall in love with him, and he's flirting and courting her. Other times he's trying to, like, throw her away and warn her not to, like, get involved with him or be with him. You know, classic Byronic Gothic tropes. Right. And then it's like, hey, what what really happened between Paul and Wesley and Jessica and, and Mrs. Rand? But really the three of them, because, like, yeah, I get it that, you know, she wanted to leave Paul for Wesley and they wanted to get off the island, Paul says, like, he stopped Jessica from leaving the island by force. And he thinks he's responsible for her condition, which is like, but didn't the doctor say she had a fever? So what happened to her that makes you think you were responsible? And what put her into that coma? And what really happened? And we don't know. And the other thing is, like, when Paul's having dialogue with Betsy about, you know, oh... You've shown me what love can truly mean, and I'm really in love with you, and uh, isn't this sweet and romantic? The way that he explains that Betsy has really, you know, made him into this better person who understands the value of love is by contrasting it with how he felt around Jessica, which, like, if you want to interpret this this way, he basically says, I was an abusive husband. He doesn't say it that way, but he just sort of says, oh yeah, everything she said or did made me pissed off constantly. So so is Paul a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is Betsy ending up with Paul at the end a good thing? Mm-hmm. Like, is she going to make him into a better person because of the true meaning of love or whatever? <laughs> or is this, like, tragic for her that she's stuck on this island with, you know, crazy Mrs. Rand and, like, horrifically depressed Paul? Is this movie ending on a good note? 
where, oh, the young lovers are together, which is, like, your standard Hollywood note? Or is that actually a worse ending, like, for these characters than where they were when they started? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to read this. And the movie lets you read it how you want to read it. Like, it's up to you. There's a lot of questions left unanswered, and that's for the better, because uncertainty and unknown is what makes for fear and horror, right? We've had that conversation in movies past. One of the really remarkable things that struck me while we were watching this, and it's kind of a trend throughout the Luton horror movies, um, certainly the two that we've seen so far, is compared to their contemporaries, these movies frontline women and women's point of view and women's experiences. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking as we were watching this movie that I couldn't imagine this story being told from just solely a guy. Like, I don't know, I just, I felt, I could feel Adele's point of view coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, this ultimately, if you want to look at the structure of it, is the story of a nurse who comes to help this damaged woman and the woman who caused that condition. That's the main characters. The story hinges on Betsy, Jessica, and Mrs. Rand. Paul and Wesley are important of course, but they never feel like they're the protagonists. They don't have that feel of, like, this is the ersatz male lead that we sometimes get with these movies. Um, you know, they're supporting characters, the same way that usually women are supporting characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they aren't driving the story. Paul doesn't do anything in this movie. He sits around at his house and gives vague statements about maybe he's good and maybe he's bad. And he plays may- the piano. He plays the piano and talks about how everything is death. And Wesley just drinks a lot and bitches at Paul and calls him out on his bullshit with a bitter tone in his voice until it's time for him to get voodoo controlled to go kill Jessica. Like, that's it for those guys. The movie's about three women. One question... So so we've talked about like how you can interpret this a bunch of different ways. I guess what I want to ask you now is I'm really curious to know, like personally, what do you think's going on in this movie? Like what's your interpretation? Acknowledging that the movie leaves it ambiguous and there is no right answer, what does Sarah think is happening? I take the movie at its own terms, and because it's drawing such a strong line between Jessica's movements Mm -hmm. um, and the voodoo and the rituals, um, I think Jessica is a zombie. I think Mrs. Rand, whether it was a moment of, like, I don't believe she was possessed, but um, she was obviously very furious at Jessica, so I think she is directly implicated in Jessica's condition. Now, as far as Wesley... Killing Jessica, I don't know how voodoo works, (laughs) but I know how people like to describe miracles or fate or, you know, it just so happened that you were passing by right when you needed to. Sure. So Wesley wanting to free Jessica from this state... I think is his own point of view. That's his agency Mm. there. Um, As far as when he decides to take the arrow and kill her, I think it's voodoo kind of 
persuading these lines to come together. Mm. I'm I'm sort of in a similar boat with you. I think I view the movie's use of voodoo as saying that voodoo influences events that were happening anyways. Yeah. Um like like with Wesley at the end of the movie, what's interesting is we don't see his like him with a doll, right? We don't see them with a little Wesley doll walking it around. So you don't have that same visual connection between his movements and the voodoo that you do with Jessica, which helps to very much more strongly imply that the voodoo is real. Very much more strongly. Yes. But Paul is just kind of sitting on the veranda when Jessica comes walking towards the gate and she can't get outside. And the way that Paul moves when he gets up, lets her out, gets the arrow, follows her, stabs her, is in this kind of, you know, trance-looking set of movements. It doesn't look like... It feels very deliberate. Yes, in that kind of zombie style that has kind of become the parlance for this style of acting in horror movies, right? Now, how do you connect that? Well, obviously we see him pin the doll when he stabs Jessica with the arrow. But the other really subtle thing is they're sort of pulling on this Jessica doll with like a string to make it move forward and then we see Jessica walking. And when she gets to the gate, the, like, doll stops, and he can't, like, pull it anymore. And then we see the, the saber man, like, go over to the Hungan and, like, whisper in the Hungan's ear. And then the next shot is Paul getting up and letting her out. Which, to me, really strongly implied, ah, he's under their control. Mm-hmm. With, you know, the question of, is Jessica a zombie? You know, I don't know if... The, the trick is, is like the movie doesn't quite tell us whatever happened on that night with Paul and Wesley. I get the sense that Paul, the only way Paul believes he's responsible for Jessica's condition is he must have put her in a coma. Like he must have done something to her. That the fever that she had is like a cover for an assault. A lot of the clues for the movie's backstory come in the Calypso song. Yeah. Uh, Shame and Scandal by Sir Lancelot, whose lyrics are... Just the story of the movie being told to you. And they talk... I think we get that in like the first 20 minutes or so of the movie. Yeah. And it's in sort of an interesting uh, set of scenes where Wesley takes Betsy, uh, you know, sort of touring the town. They stop at like a little cafe. He gets way too drunk. And this singer you know, kind of street musician starts playing this song that clearly, like, everyone on the island knows, and Wesley doesn't really care for it, so he stops singing the song, he apologizes, and then we kind of cut to, like, later that evening, and Wesley has passed out drunk, and the singer starts singing it again. And what's really interesting here is when the singer apologized about it, he said, you know, oh, I would have never started singing this if I had known you were here, and especially here with a lady, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you in front of this woman. And then he makes the explicit choice to sing it to Betsy. Like later. a warning. Yeah, exactly. The tone is like a warning. Because it's night, no one else is there, and he's just walking towards her slowly, singing this song. The wife and the brother, they want to go. But the Holland man, he tell them no. The wife fall down and the evil came. And it burned her mind in the fever flame. Wes! Wes, we must get back to Fort Holland. Shame and sorrow for the family. Her eyes are empty and she cannot talk. 
And the nurse has come to make her walk. The brothers are lonely and the nurse is young. And now you must see that my song is sung. Awo, ami. Shame and sorrow for the family. Awo, ami. Shame and sorrow for the family. And in the song, it describes that the bad woman fell down. Yeah. And then that's when the trouble started. Um, So what I think about Jessica being a zombie is that maybe Mrs. Rand went to the Hungan and asked for Jessica to be made a zombie. And maybe that ritual was done at a time that coincided with Jessica being in a coma due to an assault from Paul. And now she, you know, she never got better from her coma, or she exists post-coma in this state because that ritual was done. So Mrs. Rand didn't really put her into this condition Paul did, but Mrs. Rand is responsible in a roundabout way for the condition she has sort of now, right? Mm -hmm. If that makes sense? Yeah. And, yeah, I just sort of read, I don't really know how to get a handle on Paul, but I don't think he's a good person, No. And I'm not sure if Betsy ending up with him is a good ending. I think the implication maybe is that she's making him a good person by showing him, like, love for the first time in his life or whatever, but I'm not... I don't really like that. The trope in all of these gothic novels and everything like that is that a good woman can heal the troubled man. Right. So it's... That's a fraught thing in and of itself. Yeah. So I think that's what you're picking up on. Yes. And I I don't know if I like that trope or agree with that trope, because I think if you start to apply that trope to real life, you end up in a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, But on the basis of saying that's the way these kind of stories end, that's the way these stories work, that's what this genre is, we can read it as the movie at least wants us to take it at its word that he will be better with her. That the movie at least means for this to be a happy ending. Another question that I I would like to get to the heart of, and I'm not sure if we can, is... So I think this movie's undeniably uh, chilling, but what are we afraid of here? What's, what's, What's the fear? What's the horror? I think it would be a misreading to characterize this film like Black Moon, you know, where we're just afraid of the natives and the voodoo. But, like... Are we afraid of the zombies? Sometimes. Um, There's a lot of varied things that provide the scares in this movie. You know, Jessica's scary at times. Carrefour's scary at times. Uh, The Saberman is scary at times. The Calypso Singer is scary at times. No one's really scary all the time. No one's the monster. Um, Even just, like, one thing that came to me watching the movie is the dark is scary in this movie. And that's something that gets explicitly called out in dialogue, where uh, Paul makes fun of Betsy by saying, like, oh, are you afraid of the dark? Um, <laughs> and he lights a match right there. <laughs> without the midnight society. <laughs> um, are we afraid of madness in this movie? Are we afraid of death? Do we welcome death? Are we afraid of a life that's not within our own control? What are we getting at? at the heart of this movie. I think you already said it. Um, fear of the unknown. 
when Carrefour is coming, um, when, when he's, like, snooping around the mansion, and then, um, he's coming towards Paul, um, and he has his arms outstretched as if he's about to give, like, a big bear hug, but it's a very threatening kind of approach, and it's a fear of, like, what is he going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the same fear when Betsy first meets Jessica, like, who is this? What is she going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and fear of the dark is what's in the dark. Mm-hmm. So I think you're totally on there with talking about how the fears of the unknown, especially of like, what have I gotten myself into? What, are, right. what is the background of these people? What is I'm going s- to happen to me? Yeah, I'm stuck in this island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's what we're supposed to be afraid of. And I think that's why most of the horror in this film comes from the atmosphere yes. because it's where you are, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's probably also why I find the silence so scary in the film because suddenly, you know, you're getting all this oral information about your surroundings, um, of like where the pond is, where the owl is, um, everything like that. And then when that's gone, you have no way to orient yourself. Hmm. What do you think? Yeah, you're probably right. I think that's... <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's, it's just, it feels so strange to boil down, like, this really complicated movie that has a lot going on and a screenplay that refuses to give you any answers and then say, well, what's it about? Fear of the unknown. Just because fear of the unknown is the most basic fear that people have. It's the first fear that you have. But I guess that means it's also the most effective one, right? Yeah. Well, I have a question for you, Ben. hmm Where would you rank this? So, before we get into ranking, which either is going to go very well or very contestedly, I'm not sure, I would like to note that this is our 100th film that we are ranking on the list. Oh, shit. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. We should have, like, announced that at the beginning. Yeah. Now it's a surprise ending. <laughs> so, for my range for this movie, Sarah, I am pretty certain that this movie is better than the 1934 Black Cat, which is currently sitting at number six on the list. And the reason why I think it's better than the Black Cat is that both of these movies have some holes in their story where you're not quite sure what the backstory is and you're not quite sure what's going on, but this movie's doing it on purpose, and the Black Cat has that because a bunch of scenes were cut out and fucked around with in the censoring of the movie. I also was gravitating towards the Black Cat because I Walked With a Zombie has a very strong sense of place and horror coming from that, and the Black Cat has that as well. Yeah, for sure. So, that's my floor is above the black cat. Okay. And then, you know, above there we've got Island of Lost Souls. And I'm not sure if this is better or worse. They both take place on a mysterious island with some, you know... Some lost souls. And some colonialism and and, and that sort of thing. Um, above Island of Lost Souls, we have Short Carlin. And I'm not sure if this is better than that. I think... There's more menace in I Walked With a Zombie, and it has more of an edge for my money, and it 
I, I prefer a movie like this that has like ambiguities and lets me think about things rather than the Phantom Hammer Carriage, yeah, you. which is a sermon. Yeah. But on the other hand, like the Phantom Carriage has some pretty dire shit going on in it that's pretty intense. Above that, we have the Old Dark House, which also has the fucked up family with a mysterious backstory element. Um, and everyone feels like they have a backstory. Yes. And it's got that same claustrophobic sense of place. But what this movie doesn't have is comic relief that's trying to cut the tension the way that The Old Dark House has, you know, some comic relief elements in it. And then we get to the real questions, the real meaty dilemmas of, is I Walked With a Zombie better than cat people? And, you know, I we talked about it at the top of uh, the segment here, that, uh, you know, you don't think it is. And the last time we watched this, I thought it was. Val Luton thought it was. And then it's like, is it better than Jekyll and Hyde, though? (sighs) My thoughts there are that, like, Jekyll and Hyde is very intense and has, like, a lot of really unpleasant stuff in it and also has a very intelligent script with very well-rounded characters. Um... And it's been at the top of the list for a very long time. I think, personally, I really like what you called the quiet horror in this movie. You know, maybe that makes sense of why I like Vampire. But there's something about the sort of understated nature of this movie that is, to me, more powerful than Jekyll and Hyde, which is a good movie, but kind of definitely jumps around and is a bit over the top and kind of yells and screams at you. You know, it's, it's very performative. It, sorry, it's just funny to describe a film as performative. Right. But yeah, it's it's a very um, loud movie. It's not subtle. Uh, so that's my range, Sarah. My range is one to five. Oof. I can go anywhere in there, but that's that's my range. I'm not sure about anything other than it's better than the Black Cat from 34. Where are you looking? So like I mentioned, um, I also kind of had my eyes towards the black cat. Um, and when I was first looking at ranking, I was like, you know, this this is pretty comparable. So this is a good place to put a ceiling. Okay. So you went the other direction from me. I didn't quite know where to stop. I kind of just ended up stopping at 19, The Walking Dead, because of like the way that they control atmosphere. But I, I just wasn't really sure where to stop. <laughs> um... I don't know, what kind of threw a wrench into everything for me was Furman Maria because of how, like, oof, that movie was. And that really brought in a sense of place and of terror. And it also frontlines a female perspective in a way that's rare, but that this movie does. Yeah. So, you know, let's call my range 6 to 13. Um, looking above the black cat, um, I definitely see where you're coming from. I don't think I could put... I walked with a zombie over the old dark house. Hmm. I don't really remember the comedy parts. I just remember that movie feeling so oppressive and that the weird old lady Mm -hmm. sister who was like terrorizing the like young, beautiful woman, Mm -hmm. like in the mirrors and stuff. Like I feel like old dark house deserves to be above. I walked with the zombie. A lot of the comic relief elements are sort of from 
the various people who keep ending up at the house throughout the night and, like, sitting around the fire and having a bunch of dialogue about, like, oh, what do you do for a living? And here's my opinion on that. The kind of stage play elements of Old Dark House, where it's just a bunch of people standing around talking, as opposed to, like, the visual film elements of that movie, which are more straight horror. Um, a lot of the those dialogue scenes, though, do turn into feelings of darkness, mm. at the very least. Yeah. That's why everyone feels like they have lived-in lives, yes. as, as it were. But I, I see where, you, where you're coming from with Island of Lost Souls and Phantom Carriage. Um, I think it's harder to pull off this quiet kind of horror than Phantom Carriage's bash you over the head with the message yeah. kind of thing. Um, not that Short Carlin is not an incredibly well-made film. I'm, I'm just, you know, having to rank these, so I'm happy to <laughs> say things. Um, and Island of Lost Souls definitely has the colonialism elements to it, um, but I think it's done in a much more... Um, it feels like it's handled uh, with gloves and kind of far away, compared well, to I Walked with a Zombie, where it feels very steeped into even the themes of the film. Well, it's because Island of Lost Souls is doing the Star Trek thing. It's handling colonialism through allegory, right? Where it's like, <laughs> we have a mad scientist and his, you know, village of beast people. Uh, you know, we're not directly saying, yeah, here's a sugarcane plantation owner and, like, all of his ex-slaves. Like, yeah. it's it's way more just text, right, in I Walked with a Zombie? Yeah. The thing, too, with me and this movie and... It's something that this movie shares with cat people. Is the characters in this movie feel like people. Mm -hmm. Real people. And I get that that is kind of what you were saying too about Old Dark House. But for my money, like, Lost Souls doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. Dr. Moreau is a great character, but he is definitely just like a villain. And the lead character of that movie, whose name I don't remember, because he's just as nondescript and boring as most horror movie protagonists, he doesn't even really feel like a hero to fight Dr. Moreau. He's just a point of view. He doesn't even fight Dr. Moreau. No, he's <laughs> he's there so the story has a reason to be told, right? In order to tell the story of Dr. Moreau's Island, we need someone who goes there and leaves there. So that's what he is. There's yeah. nothing else to his character. You know, and Phantom Carriage, the characters are well drawn out in the sense that, like, the movie's going to tell you everything about them, but they are definitely archetypes in a morality play. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the well-meaning nun and the, you know, lousy drunk and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm willing to say that this goes below Old Dark House because um, of the intensity of that movie. Uh, it's It's certainly more intense than I Walked with a Zombie, which is a bit more of a you know, as we keep saying, a quieter movie, um, sort of a sleeper movie, you know? <laughs> Almost like you become the zombie. <laughs> That's sort of mean. I think I Walked With a Zombie is a movie that sticks with you after it's done and you turn the lights out and you have to, like, make your way back to your bedroom in the dark or whatever, whereas um, Old Dark House is going to get you, like, while you're watching the movie. Um, so... I'm kind of willing to put it here, if you're okay with that. Yeah, cool. Okay, so entering the list under the old dark house, above Shore Carlin, so at number four on the list, 
is I Walked with a Zombie from 1943, directed by Jacques Tourneur. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned. Um, Again, if you want to hear more about the history of Haiti and how voodoo relates to it, you can listen to episode 32 on the film White Zombie. On our website, you can also find an appeals box if you would like to submit an appeal about this or any other ranking, any kind of concerns, questions, hey, you missed this movie, you can submit it through our website or email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help the show out by leaving a rating or a review on the service that you listen to the show on if it allows it. Another way you can help out the show is just by sharing us with a friend, whether that's on social media or in the real world. A direct financial way you can help out the show is by heading to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. And at higher levels, such as $5 and $10, there are uh, regular rewards for patrons. If we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing a horror-adjacent movie episode once a month, where we might cover films like King King of the Zombies Zombies. or Zombies on Broadway. (laughs) I just imagine, like, zombies with, like, top hats and canes doing that frog song. Yeah, or like... Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Or like the the thing from um, that one Bugs Bunny cartoon of like, oh, we're the boys of the chorus. We hope you like our show. Um, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So if you would like to see those zombies in a kick line... You'll need to head over to patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, we are just trucking along. We are headed right into The Leopard Man, Ooh. the next RKO movie from Val Luton and Jacques Tourneur. We're just pumping these babies out. Yep. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.